it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. I'm Craig Baird, and welcome to another episode of Canada, A Yearly Journey. Today, we're looking at 1882. On January 8th, David Milne is born in Ontario. He would become a noted Canadian painter, printmaker, and writer. He would be described as one of the three greatest North American artists of his generation by art critic Clement Greenberg. But he often found himself overshadowed by the Group of Seven. But today he is recognized as one of our greatest artists, and his work has appeared in the National Gallery of Canada, the British Museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Art Gallery of Ontario. And he would pass away on December 26, 1953, at the age of 71. On February 1st, Louis Saint Laurent would be born in Compton, Quebec. While his father was French-Canadian, his mother was Irish-Canadian, giving the family a unique balance that would influence Saint Laurent heavily in his life. Growing up bilingual, his gestures tended to be French, while his English had a slight Irish accent to it. He would speak French to his father and English to his mother, a practice he thought was common in families, and something that would influence him in his desire for national unity as Prime Minister. Growing up, his father was a strong supporter of the Liberal Party, even when the riding he lived in was dominated by the Conservatives. His father, Jean-Baptiste, would run in a provincial by-election in 1894 to no success. In 1896, when the Liberals and Wilfrid Laurier came to power, Saint Laurent would relay the election returns from the telephone in his father's store to many waiting to hear the results. Despite having a passion for politics, which he inherited from his father, Saint Laurent was never drawn to the profession, preferring to focus on his law career. During the campaign tour of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, Saint Laurent would actually meet him and shake his hands, something he would relate later in life. He would begin his professional career as a lawyer, and throughout the 1920s and 1930s, he worked as a corporation lawyer and was the head of the Quebec Bar and the president of the Canadian Bar Association from 1930 to 1932. During this time, he was one of the country's most respected councils. An example of the respect he commanded came in 1926, when Prime Minister Arthur Meehan offered him a seat on the Supreme Court of Canada, which he declined, and a post in Cabinet, which he also declined. He would be 60 years old when he finally entered into politics and would become Canada's Minister of Justice and the Attorney General on December 10, 1941. 
Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King had called St. Laurent on December 4, 1941, and asked him to be in Ottawa the next day. Over lunch, King asked him to take over as the Minister of Justice and the MP for Quebec East. At the time, King knew that St. Laurent was making $50,000 a year, or $850,000 today, so he appealed to a sense of duty to his country. In the 1945 election, which the Liberals won with a smaller majority than before, many were surprised that St. Laurent ran given his original statement that he would not be in politics after the war. Nonetheless, he ran and picked up 59.8% of the vote in his riding and 17,000 more votes than his second-place opponent. He would continue in various roles in the government, including as the Secretary of State for External Affairs from 1946 to 1948. As a representative for Canada at the founding of the United Nations, he felt that the UN would be ineffective in times of war and that it would need to impose its will. As a result, he advocated for the adoption of a UN military force. He wanted a force that would deal with violent situations, but also preserve peace and prevent combat. A decade later, this idea would be put into reality by St. Laurent and his Secretary of State for External Affairs, Lester P. Pearson, in preventing the Suez Crisis from escalating into nuclear war. On January 7, 1948, he would become leader of the Liberal Party, and a few months later, on November 15, 1948, he became the 12th Prime Minister of Canada. As 1949 dawned for St. Laurent, he would get down to work on several tasks, while also preparing for his first election, and the first election for the Liberals without William Lyne Mackenzie King at the helm of the party since 1921. Prior to the election, he would also help negotiate the entry of Newfoundland in the Confederation on March 31, 1949, which was the last change to the Canadian political map until 1999, and the first new province since 1905, which came during the time of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. The election held on June 27, 1949 was the first with Newfoundland and Confederation, and the first since 1908 with the Northwest Territories gaining representation. In that election, St. Laurent would win 191 seats in the House, an increase of 73 seats from the 1945 election. At the time, it was the largest majority in Canadian history, and today remains the third largest majority. It's also the largest amount of seats in the history of the Liberal Party. The Progressive Conservatives would lose 24 seats, finishing with only 41. Prior to that election, many worried if St. Laurent would appeal to post-war Canada, but through the first use of a media image in Canadian politics, St. Laurent was shown talking with children, giving speeches in shirt sleeves, and having a common touch to appeal to voters. One example of this was seen in an election stop when he got off the train and went to talk to children on the platform instead of reporters. This gained him the name of Uncle Louie, which greatly increased the view of his common touch and broad appeal. For the Canadian public, St. Laurent was a breath of fresh air, and many applauded his kindness for children. In 1954, while standing at a railway station in Ottawa with Prime Minister Yoshida of Japan, a young girl named Jill Wynette began crying because her grandmother was going to England for the winter. St. Laurent walked away from the Japanese Prime Minister and comforted Jill. Events like this pushed the view of Uncle Louis, the benevolent patriarch who loved children. In 1949, St. Laurent was a leading proponent for the establishment of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. A charter delegate to the United Nations, he early decided to look elsewhere for national security, saying it was obvious the organization would be prevented from effective maintenance of world peace. His experience as Minister of Justice in the Guzenko spy expose 
failed to reassure him. And so, Louis Saint Laurent from Quebec became one of the first Western leaders to propose NATO, the North Atlantic Alliance. Lester B. Pearson termed this concept a new and revolutionary departure for Canada and the United States. No such alliance had ever been undertaken in time of peace. In the kind of world we are now living in, there is no quick and easy way to peace or to anything we would like to think of as normal existence. We have first of all to create and after that to maintain, perhaps for generations, military strength which will be too substantial to be challenged by any potential aggressor with any hope of final victory. But if the free world is to be safe, and if we and our children and our children's children are to enjoy a free and expanding society in this Western Hemisphere, we in North America must now, and for many years ahead, accept and discharge with wisdom and above all with patience the heavy responsibilities which are inseparable from the position of power which North America has in the world of our generation. Overall, St. Laurent took a harder line to communism than King, disliking it to a much greater degree than his predecessor. He chose not to outlaw the Communist Party of Canada in 1949, as he saw it as too drastic of a measure. One of the biggest projects for St. Laurent during his first term in office was the Trans-Canada Highway Act of 1949, which saw the construction of the Trans-Canada Highway begin in 1950 and continue until 1962, creating the longest uninterrupted highway in the world upon its total completion in 1971. One of the biggest challenges for St. Laurent during this term was the Korean War, which Canada entered in June of 1950 as part of the United Nations force. Canada would send 30,000 troops to Korea, along with warships and other forces. And during the war, 500 Canadians would die, while 1,200 would be wounded. Overall, Canada submitted the third most troops to the war, all on a volunteer basis without the use of conscription. Within Canada, St. Laurent would see a huge expansion of the social programs of the country, including family allowances, old age pensions, the funding of post-secondary education, the creation of hospital insurance, which would lay the groundwork for Tommy Douglas to create a universal health care system in Saskatchewan, followed by universal health care nationwide in the 1960s. Through the modernization of social policies, the St. Laurent government would expand old-age pensions for all Canadians over the age of 70, while introducing old-age assistance for needy Canadians over the age of 65. Allowances for the blind and the disabled were also introduced, as were changes to the National Housing Act that allowed for the construction of hostels and housing for students, as well as the elderly, disabled, and families of low-income means. In 1951, St. Laurent moved into 24 Sussex Drive, becoming the first Prime Minister to live in the present official residence of the Prime Minister of Canada. By 1954, St. Laurent was beginning to tire, especially after a trip around the world that same year, the first for a Canadian Prime Minister. In 1956, the Suez Crisis erupted between Britain, France, Israel and Egypt, and there was a danger that it would escalate into a Third World War that would likely go nuclear. And that's when St. Laurent and Lester B. Pearson worked to resolve the crisis through the formation of the United Nations Emergency Force. And while Pearson would be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, St. Laurent deserves as much credit for helping to create the force. 
St. Laurent's government would introduce equalization payments in 1956, which redistributed tax revenue between provinces to assist poorer provinces in delivering government programs and services. Before the 1957 election, St. Laurent's government would take $100 million in death taxes and use it to establish the Canada Council, which supports social sciences, arts, and humanity to this day. When the 1957 election came along, St. Laurent was appearing old and out of touch at the age of 75. This was the first televised election, which would influence voters heavily. For the most part, St. Laurent did not make an impression over television, and many felt, especially after the 1956 pipeline debate, that the Liberals had become arrogant with power, having governed Canada since 1935. Several factions within the party were now looking at removing St. Laurent, and he was also dealing with a dynamic new opponent in John Diefenbaker. In the election held on June 10, 1957, the Liberals had 200,000 more votes than the Progressive Conservatives, but most of those came in Quebec, where St. Laurent remained immensely popular. The party would lose 64 seats to fall to 105, while the Progressive Conservatives picked up 61 seats, taking 112 to form the new government. After almost a decade in power, St. Laurent was out as Prime Minister. The Liberals were also out of power, ending the longest uninterrupted run in government for a party at the federal level in Canadian history. And while many still wanted St. Laurent to lead the party, it was clear his heart was not it, but his sense of loyalty prevented him from resigning. Lionel Chevier and Lester B. Pearson, at the request of St. Laurent's family, would come to the summer home and persuaded him that he would not be deserting the party if he resigned. A letter of resignation had been drafted by Pearson, and after a while, St. Laurent gave it his consent. But he did so only on the promise from Pearson that he would run to replace him. For St. Laurent, what had been a temporary career in politics had lasted 17 years, and the Liberal Party had a new leader in Pearson and St. Laurent would pass away on July 25, 1973, at the age of 91. What are these compensations which uh, a Prime Minister who has to bear the burden of leading his country into difficult decisions, what are the compensations that a Prime Minister uh, does get? Well, of course, uh, I suppose the, the, uh, the principal uh, compensation is uh, uh, the... The uh, illusion, perhaps, but nevertheless the satisfaction of feeling that uh, he has been useful. Just that, been useful to his country. You get no sense of pride out of having led your country? Well, uh, no, quite frankly, I uh, uh, find it, uh, uh, well, a bit strange uh, that... Uh, uh, some people attach so much importance to meeting a former prime minister. And, uh, but uh, it is so. And uh, when I look back, uh, uh, I got great satisfaction out of meeting Sir Wilfrid Laurier when I was a youth. And I suppose that's just uh, one of the common traits of all of us. Did you ever at any time feel a sense of power and enjoy it? No, I don't think so. Uh, uh, it is not really power. Uh, it is the uh, the satisfaction of uh, uh, getting a number of people to uh, work together harmoniously and to 
to achieve certain results, uh, which they, uh, they have reason to be, with which they have reason to be satisfied. On February 4th, Edwin Pratt would be born in Newfoundland. He would go on to become a leading Canadian poet and a three-time winner of the Governor General Award for Poetry. He is often cited as being the foremost Canadian poet of the first half of the century. In 1930, he would be elected to the Royal Society of Canada, and he would pass away on April 26, 1964, at the age of 82. In 1975, he was named a person of national historic significance. On March 6th, Barbara Hanley would be born in Ontario. She would eventually serve as the mayor of Webwood, Ontario, becoming the first woman in Canadian history to be elected as a mayor in a general election. She would serve from 1936 to 1944, and then as a town clerk from 1946 to 1950. She would pass away in January of 1959. On May 8th, Prince Edward Island would host its latest election, with William Wilfred Sullivan marching towards another Conservative victory and a majority in the province. Sullivan had first become Premier of Prince Edward Island, the fourth in its history, in 1879. Since that point, he'd become a fierce supporter of the island within Canada, and he often protested against the federal government, who he felt did not live up to its promises with Confederation when the island joined Canada in 1873. In the latest election, his party saw its support fall by 14%, losing three seats but still maintaining a majority of 21. The Liberals, who were without a leader in the election, moved from six seats to nine. I'll be looking at that time in Prince Edward Island's history on my podcast from John to Justin in just a couple weeks, so be sure to check it out. On May 17th, the internal borders of Canada were adjusted when the provisional districts of the Northwest Territories are established between Manitoba and British Columbia, forming the districts of Assiniboine, Athabasca, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. On May 25th, John Sparrow David Thompson becomes the Premier of Nova Scotia, taking over from Simon Holmes. Sparrow had been in the Nova Scotia House of Assembly since 1877, but he would only serve for two months as the Premier of the province before losing in the 1882 election. He would then join the Nova Scotia Supreme Court, and in 1885 entered federal politics and became the Minister of Justice. In 1892, he would become the Prime Minister of Canada, the first Roman Catholic to have the position, but he would die suddenly of a heart attack, only two years into his term. In June, the New Brunswick election was held with with Daniel Lionel Hannington winning 22 seats, while Andrew George Blair formed the opposition with 18 seats. Once the legislature started up, Blair was able to win enough support from MLAs to topple the government of Harrington and form a new government, with himself as Premier. On June 9th, Robert Kerr was born in Ireland. He would come to Canada as a child at the age of five with his family and settle near Hamilton. Working as a firefighter, he enjoyed running in his spare time, and he would turn that enjoyment into a short career, winning Canadian titles in the 100-yard dash in 1907 and the 200-yard dash from 1906 to 1908. In 1908, he would travel to the Summer Olympics in London, and he would take gold in the 200 metres and bronze in the 100 metres. In the First World War, he would enlist and serve in various battalions. He would then go to become a coach in football and athletics, and was an official at the 1928 and 1932 Olympics and he would die at the age of 80 in 1963. On June 13th, Robert Beaven became the Premier of British Columbia, succeeding from George Wacom. Beaven had moved to British Columbia from Toronto and was first elected to the legislature in 1871. Unpopular and accused of corruption, he would only last as Premier until January 29, 1883, when he was brought down by a vote of no confidence. 
On June 20th, the federal election was held, and by all accounts was quite benign. By this point, Alexander Mackenzie was out as leader of the Liberal Party, and he was replaced by Edward Blake, the man who was nearly Prime Minister when the Conservative government fell amid the Pacific Scandal in 1873. There was a slight increase in seats from 206 to 211, and Manitoba, as I mentioned, saw its borders grow slightly, to about half its current size. The Conservatives ran on the platform of the national policy again, and were aided by good economic times. This was turned into a campaign focus that the party and its policies were responsible for the good economic times that Canada was enjoying. In contrast, Blake and the Liberals focused on a call upon traditions and reform resistance to special privilege in what they said was oppressive rule. He would state that the Liberals were the special guardians and the tone of the public morality. Once again, Sir Johnny MacDonald ran in multiple ridings. This time he chose Lennox and Carleton. As it would turn out, MacDonald would win in Lennox and Carleton, and he would choose to represent Carleton. Of course, a Lennox win would be thrown out after irregularities were found in the vote. In the lead-up to the election, there was a great deal of anticipation, according to the newspapers. The Montreal Gazette would report in Toronto, The excitement in reference to the elections tomorrow is intense here. Business seems completely at a standstill and on the public streets, groups are congregated discussing the possibilities. Betting is also lively and canvassing. Betting is also lively, and canvassers on both sides are working vigorously. Now, it may seem odd to hear of betting, but this was prevalent at the time when it came to elections. On June 19th, the day before the election, it was reported that a bet of $100 was made on the result of the contest, although it doesn't say who the bet was for. Now, this was no small amount of money either amounting to about $10,000 today. In Toronto, betting was reported as very active, and since it was the 19th century, there was, of course, still reports of bullying, but this should be taken with an open mind as the Montreal Gazette was very pro-conservative, and it only reported the Liberals in a typically unfavorable fashion. A total of 70.3% of the eligible voters cast a ballot, and most of those did so for the Conservatives. While the Liberals under Blake fared well, picking up 73 seats, an increase of 10 from 1878, the Conservatives lost only one seat, falling to 133 and retaining their hold on power with a majority government. The number of independents had also fallen in this election, with only five total, three of which came from British Columbia. Every province also voted heavily for the Conservatives. Quebec once again went behind the Conservative banner electing 50 to the House of Commons and only 12 Liberals. Ontario was much closer, with 52 Conservatives earning a seat, compared to 40 Liberals. The Montreal Gazette hailed the victory as magnificent on June 21st, the day after the election. The article would state, Every one of the supporters of the government have done credible work, and only Prince Edward Island will send a minority of Conservative representatives to the new House. To celebrate the election on June 22nd, a torchlight parade was held in Ottawa that included Sir John Macdonald in a front carriage with other prominent cabinet ministers. A total of 2,000 people joined the procession as it made its way through the city. On July 19th, Sarah Ramsland was born in Boone Lake, Minnesota. She would move to Saskatchewan in 1906 and settle in Canada to begin with. Over a decade later in 1917, she would be elected as a Liberal MLA for Pelly, becoming the first woman ever elected to the Legislative Assembly of Saskatchewan. She would serve as MLA until 1925 and she would pass away on April 4th, 1964 in Prince Albert at the age of 81. On July 30th, Joseph Alfred Massou became the Premier of Quebec. 
He was first elected to the House of Commons in 1874, and he would serve as the Secretary of State of Canada before leaving federal politics to become the 6th Premier of Quebec. He would serve until January 22, 1884, when he resigned. The Nova Scotia Liberals, who had won the previous election without a leader, would find their leader on August 3rd with William Thomas Pipes. His two years as Premier would be mostly unsuccessful, and his personal situation, as well as his relationship with his cabinet, were not the best, and he would resign on July 15, 1884. On October 3rd, A.Y. Jackson would be born in Montreal. He would become a founding member of the Group of Seven and one of Canada's greatest painters. He would paint war paintings through the First World War, and would become good friends with Sir Frederick Banting, the co-discoverer of insulin. The two would actually take an Arctic journey together in 1927, in which they spent their time painting landscapes. He holds his brush gripped firmly between thumb and forefinger, in what may seem an awkward position. This has been necessitated by rheumatic stiffening of his thumb, which started six years ago while he was painting in British Columbia. But it hasn't lessened his output. He still does 60 to 80 sketches a year, and about 20 canvases. For the first five years after World War I, he didn't make $600 a year, and it was a long time before he made much more than that. Probably this is the main reason why he never married. His young nieces often visit him. Come in. Jackson would pass away on April 5, 1974, at the age of 91, and he was awarded the Order of Canada in 1967, as well as two schools being named for him, and in 1970, he was awarded a Medal for Lifetime Achievement by the Royal Canadian Academy. On November 4th, Frank McGee was born to a prominent family. His uncle, Thomas Darcy McGee, was a father of Confederation, and his father, John Joseph McGee, was a clerk for the Privy Council. Following his schooling, McGee began to work at the Department of Indian Affairs, but while he had a good-paying job, his love was sports. He did well in lacrosse and rugby, but it was hockey that he was meant to play. McGee would be mentioned in the Ottawa Journal for his play on the football field, stating, Frank McGee's play was one of the features of the match. Things came McGee's way on Saturday, and when they were not, he was looking for work, and he did everything without a miss. McGee handled the ball more than anybody on the field. His future hockey career, though, was nearly ended before it began when at the age of 18 he suffered a terrible eye injury in an amateur game while playing for the Canadian Pacific Railway team on March 21, 1900. A lifted puck had hit him in the eye, and he would lose the eye in the process. But still wanting to be on the ice, McGee would become a referee. 
and despite the fact that he was missing an eye, he proved to be a good referee, with the Ottawa citizen praising him, stating, who acted as referee gave every satisfaction and was quite impartial. That may have been the end of it, but in 1903, McGee found he missed playing hockey so much that he wanted to get back on the ice, and he would join the Ottawa Hockey Club, soon to be called the Ottawa Silver Seven, one of the greatest teams in hockey history. He would begin practicing with the team in January of that year, and it seemed fans were happy to see him on the ice. At the time, McGee was the youngest player on the team, and he stood 5 foot 6 inches at a time when the sport was extremely brutal on the ice. And despite his age and small stature, he quickly excelled. In his first game with Ottawa, he scored 6 goals, and by the time the season was done, he had 14 goals in 6 games and finished 2nd in league scoring. McGee seemed to be able to score goals a will. At least eight times in his career, he would score more than five goals a game. On January 16, 1905, in a game against the Dawson City Nuggets, he scored 14 goals, including eight goals in a row in nine minutes. I covered the Dawson City Nuggets, as well as Frank McGee, on my other podcast, Pucks and Cups, so check it out. McGee had been limited to only one goal the previous game, and players on the Dawson City team said he was not as good as they had heard. McGee responded with that record-setting number of goals, which is by far the most ever scored by a single player in a Stanley Cup game. McGee's highest goal total in a single regular season game was on March 3, 1906, when he scored eight goals against the Montreal Hockey Club. During the 1906 season, McGee scored an astounding 28 goals in seven games. In two playoff games against the Queen's University, he had six goals, followed by nine goals in two games against Smith Falls. From 1903 to 1906, the years that McGee played for Ottawa, he won the Stanley Cup each year and scored 63 goals in 22 Stanley Cup games. After the Montreal Wanderers claimed the Stanley Cup in a challenge game in 1906, McGee chose to retire from the game at the age of only 23. One reason for this was that his government-paying job did not allow him to travel, and that job paid him better than his hockey job did. McGee would continue to work for the government until the outbreak of the First World War. And during those years, he spent his time playing golf at the Royal Ottawa Golf Club and curled with the Rideau Curling Club. He would soon enlist with the Duke of Cornwall's own rifles, serving as a lieutenant in the 21st Infantry Battalion. And it's not known how McGee was able to enlist with only one eye. The medical officer wrote that he could see the required distance with either eye, which was not true. According to Frank Charles McGee, the nephew of McGee, his uncle had tricked the doctor. When the doctor asked him to cover one eye and read the chart, he covered the blind eye. When he was asked to cover the other eye, he simply switched hands and covered his blind eye again. Enlisting in October of 1914, McGee would be assigned to the 43rd Battalion and was expected to be one of the first Canadians to be called up to the front lines. In January of 1915, McGee, who had the rank of lieutenant now, was playing hockey for the 21st Battalion. The Winnipeg Tribune would write, Lieutenant McGee has lost but little of his cunning and was the centre of attention. In December 1915, the armored car he was in was hit by a shell, causing McGee to suffer a severe knee injury. He would recover quickly from it, according to news reports, and McGee would leave the military hospital in February and was sent to Wales to a convalescent home in order to recover before he returned to the front lines. After his time in England to recover from the knee injury, he was then given the option of a post away from the fighting, but he chose to return to his battalion at the front. He stated in a letter home on September 4th that he wanted to be part of the big push with his old battalion, it would be a fateful decision. He would arrive back in the trenches in August 1916 during the Battle of the Somme. On September 16, 1916, he was killed near Corselette. His body was never found, and his death would be written about in newspapers across Canada. 
1945, McGee was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, one of the original nine players to be inducted. In 1950, the Ottawa Silver Seven and subsequent Ottawa Senators were voted the best team of the first half of the 20th century. And in 1966, McGee was inducted into the Ottawa Sports Hall of Fame. On December 3rd, the Royal Society of Canada would be formed. This society's objective is to promote learning and research in the arts, humanities, and sciences. The society is Canada's national academy, and it promotes Canadian research and scholarly accomplishments in both languages. The organization was incorporated by a statute put forward by the House of Commons. On December 9th, Sir Hugh Allen would pass away in Scotland. Born in Scotland, but sent to Montreal to work as a young man by his father, he would return to Montreal in 1830 and became a commission merchant with his family's firm, eventually becoming a partner and helping to build it to the point where it had the largest shipping capacity of any Montreal-based firm. In 1851, he would be elected as the president of the Montreal Board of Trade, and he would establish the Montreal Ocean Steamship Company. During this time, he also served as the director of the Bank of Montreal. Later in life, he would be part of a syndicate that would form to build the National Railway. To get the contract, he bribed Sir John Macdonald and the Conservatives, providing them with $350,000, or $42 million today, for the party's re-election funds. This would erupt in the Pacific Scandal, which brought down the government to Macdonald and ended Allen's hopes of becoming a railway magnate. When he died during a visit to Scotland, he was one of the richest men in the world with a fortune valued between 8 and 12 million pounds, which would be nearly $1 billion today. Various things would happen that did not have a date in 1882. John Ware would arrive in Alberta this year. Ware was born into slavery on a plantation near Georgetown, South Carolina. When slavery was outlawed, Ware was in his early 20s and made the decision to travel to Texas so he could learn how to be a rancher and gain the skills of a cowboy. Thanks to his tall and muscular frame, he was hired to work his way up to Canada driving cattle from Texas to Montana and then further on to what would one day be Alberta. This would make him one of the first black men to come to Alberta when he helped drive the herd of 3,000 cattle into the future province. Of course, there was still racism at the time and Ware was given the toughest horse to ride and the most difficult tasks. His ability to do the challenges with success and humor quickly earned him the respect of the other men. His move into Alberta came thanks to Tom Lynch in southern Idaho in 1882. Lynch had recently purchased that 3,000 head of cattle, and he was looking for men to drive them up to his ranch. The drive began in May and ended in September at the Bar U Ranch. Ware then began to work at the legendary Bar U Ranch, before he decided to start his own ranch near the Red Deer River several years later. And it did not take him long to earn the respect of everyone who worked with him, but his nickname sadly reflected the times, and it was a nickname I won't repeat here. On May 25th of 1885, Ware registered his brand as 9999, which would eventually be 999 in 1898. In 1892, he would marry Mildred Lewis, daughter of a black homesteader in the area. They were married in the First Baptist Church of Calgary, and the Calgary Tribune at the time reported its heartfelt congratulations, noting that probably no man in the district has a greater number of warm personal friends than the groom. Soon after the marriage, the couple moved to their ranch near Millerville. By 1900, at the age of 55, he and his wife had five children on their ranch, and they made the decision to move to the Calgary area, in the area of Duchess. Ware brought 300 cattle with him, and apparently as logs came down the river, he would lasso the logs and haul them onto shore. When he was able to get enough logs, he built the house. Now this may seem far-fetched, but there is actually a picture of this in the Duchess local history book. The logs were apparently from an aborted log boom owned by the Eau Claire Lumber Company upstream and his wife and children would live in Calgary while he built their new home. 
1902, their new home was destroyed by a flood, so he rebuilt on higher ground with a new house overlooking the stream, which is today called the Ware Creek. Sadly, in 1905, his wife Mildred died from pneumonia, and Ware, only a few months later, was riding a horse when it tripped in a badger hole, falling on Ware and breaking his neck. The funeral for Ware was one of the largest ever for the early years of Calgary. 1882 was also the year that Big Bear would finally sign Treaty 6 after resisting for four years. He felt that he'd been betrayed by the other chiefs because they still signed even with his warnings. And with food supplies running low and his people coming close to starvation, he had to sign the treaty. After signing, the government told Big Bear to find a reserve to live on. Big Bear and his people did not want to live on a reserve, but in order to receive food rations from the government, they had to. In the first winter after signing the treaty, his people received no food rations since they were not on a reserve. Also this year, the Northwest Mounted Police would establish a post in Regina. This would eventually become the official training location for the RCMP. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at 1882. Next week, we're going to look at 1883. I'm Craig Baird, and this was Canada, A Yearly Journey. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com. Or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes.